And we are live. Welcome to today's episode of MicroConf on air. As always, I'm your host, Rob Walling. Thanks for joining us today. Every Wednesday, we live stream for about 30 minutes and we cover topics related to building and growing startups that are ambitious but fit within the goal of having a life, not burning yourself out and finding freedom, purpose, and relationships. Thanks for uh, joining me today. I'm going to have a guest on with me in about, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes, but halfway through the program, Anthony Eden from DN Simple will be joining us for a founder spotlight. Um, but before we get to that, I want to talk through a few housekeeping uh, things and then do a, a special news segment that, uh, that I'm going to try out for today. So starting this week, it actually, let's see, it's uh, as of this recording, this recording, I'm live streaming, um, as of yesterday, we are starting to feature uh, the best MicroConf talks in the MicroConf on air podcast feed. And so if you search for MicroConf on air in any podcast app that you have, you can subscribe to that. And what you'll hear is every Tuesday morning, um, I'm introing and giving context around a MicroConf talk from the past nine years and 19, 18, 19 events that we've run. And we started off with our, our top five rated of all time, which include a talk from Joanna Weeb, a talk from Jason Cohen, one from Sherry Walling, one from Patrick McKenzie, and one from, from me. And then we're just going to roll through, um, you know, kind of keep it going over the years. So if you have never carved out the time to listen to the best microcom talks, um, this is a, a good time to be able to do it. And the nice part is you can listen to the audio, um, you know, when you're out and about instead of having to sit in front of a, a screen on YouTube. And then if you want to come back and see the visuals, all the talks are available, easily searchable um, in our MicroConf YouTube channel. You come back and see the slides or anything like that. And I believe um, for almost all the talks, we have downloadable slides, PDF format. If you go to the talk on YouTube in the comments, we link out to that. Producer Xander's been, been hustling to get those in. So um, yeah, so that's I'm, I'm really excited about this actually, uh, because I, for one, love listening back to these talks that have had profound impacts on not only me and my business, but on really on our whole space, like on on the the kind of self-funded, indie-funded, bootstrapped uh, microconf community. Some of these talks have just rippled through and are now part of the ethos and are part of um, how we run our businesses. You know, really shaped things, and it's cool to go back and then listen to them in their original and raw form. Uh, next thing to mention is. We are doing, today it kicks us off uh, really on two new segments. Um, one is when I'm bringing Anthony Eden on a little later, and it's the Founder Story Spotlights. So what we're doing is looking for MicroConf Connect members who want to be spotlighted on MicroConf On Air. And so you can, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, you can go into the MicroConf On Air channel in MicroConf Connect, and you fill out a short type form, and then uh, we're going to be bringing folks on to hear about what you're up to, you know, it's to, it's to really engage with the community. And so we can get to know one another so that when you meet them at a microconf or you see them at a, at a microconf meet away, which are the kind of meetup things we've been doing um, online, the virtual meetups that yeah, everybody has some context around what each other's doing. And we can not only just get to know folks, but really learn from others, successes and failures. And we'll be bringing folks on from many, many stages, um, not just folks who are, who are super far along. Um, yeah. And if you, you know, all this lives on live streams on YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash microconf. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to that YouTube channel, you're going to want to do it because we're putting out a lot of um, a lot of good content, including this stuff and new microconf talks as they happen and all that. Thanks, as always, to Basecamp and Stripe. Um, they are our headline partners for the year, and uh, it's always a pleasure to be working with them. They make everything we do just a little bit easier. So I want to do a little segment here. 
kick us off. This will be just a few minutes. So Rob, it's going to be Rob Solo. Rob, looking into the camera and talking to you. I want to call this segment SAS Thoughts from Rob. And if I had given producer Xander heads up right now, he is cursing me because he really wants to have a lower third with that. But I made that title up about 10 minutes ago and I didn't tell him. SAS Thoughts from Rob. So here's the thing. There, I think there's a common misconception about growing SaaS companies, really growing any type of company. There are three, there are exactly three and only three ways to grow your revenue at a company, whether it's a SaaS company or whether it's selling anything else. But almost everyone focuses on the first one. So the, the three ways are to find more customers, to raise your prices, or to sell more to your existing customers. Okay. And I would say 80 plus percent of the founders that I speak with who have some modicum of product market fit, they do have customers who are not churning out and they know they built something people reasonably want. The number one goal is to find more customers. And that in a lot of cases, if you're early, that's actually the, probably the right thing to be doing, but it often gets forgotten to circle back, especially as you cross the phases these, these six phases of SaaS growth that I talked about on the podcast with Jordan Gall, as you cross a phase and you hit product market fit, then you hit escape velocity and then you hit scale. Each of these is a time to revisit these three ways to grow. Because again, most of us think I, more customers, more customers, more customers, and that's great. But there's two other ways to grow revenue. The second is to raise your prices. And I know this has become somewhat of a meme in the microconf community, but pricing is the number one lever. It's the number one way. It is the easiest way to double new revenue overnight is by changing that one number in Stripe and on your website. It's easier than building new features. It's easier than finding twice the customers you already have. It's easier than split testing your copy. It's easier than, than all of it. It's not foolproof, of course. You can raise your prices too high. What do I raise my prices to? Am I already overpriced? People are churning as it is. You know, there's all these questions and I get it. But the second way is to increase prices. And oftentimes it's not just an across the board increase. What we're seeing with a lot of the companies, both in Tiny Seed and that I, I you know, advise and have invested in, aside from Tiny Seed, is the, um, it's not just about raising prices often, it's about realizing, oh, the metric that I, the value metric, I'm gonna use that phrase. And all that means is it's, it's what makes people move from one tier to the next as it grows. It's the it's the, the how your pricing scales based on the value they receive. So the examples typically are with Mailchimp or Drip. It's the number of subscribers. More subscribers, higher price. With uh, Salesforce or Close.com, more seats because I need more you know more people using it. More seats, there it's more expensive. Um, those are called value metrics. It's just a, it's kind of a jargony term, but that that's what I mean by that. It's just the number or the, you know, the thing that as it goes up, um, people uh, pay you more. So when I say raise your prices or when I think of that, I don't just think looking at my pricing and doubling everything across the grid. I mean, reevaluate your entire pricing, uh, pricing structure, your value metric. Are you um, really, there's two ways to segment on pricing, right? There's value metric, which is great. And it's pretty simple. And then there's feature gating, which is to say, you have to be at this mid-tier to get the Zapier integration. You have to be at this business tier that's even more expensive to get the Salesforce integration. And those are the really the two ways that, that I see. You can either do value metric or you do feature gating or you do both. And so when you're setting up your pricing in the early days, 
really try not to do both because it's very complicated. And if you go look at, um, you look at Zapier's pricing page, you can look at uh, MailChimp's pricing page. You know, if you go to MailChimp.com or Zapier.com right now, they do both. There's a reason they do both. It's because they're, you know, I think Zapier does 50 plus million a year in revenue and MailChimp, what does it do? A billion a year? I mean, it's like incredible. So they know their business. They're way further along than, than a lot of the early stage folks. If you're early, you have much less data. And I would try to stick to one value metric or feature gating, depending on what you can do. But raising your prices is this thing that um, we see a lot of companies. I see a lot of companies uh, making that mistake of having the incorrect value metric. And as they make that shift um, to the proper value metric or to the proper you know, feature gate, you'll see even almost without raising prices, just re kind of rejiggering stuff, um, see pretty dramatic increases in growth without more new customers. You know, 50% month over month uh, growth from prior months, even though it's the same number of people coming in, it's just there's such pricing flexibility um, that their new customers don't, don't care that much about it. So first way was more customers, which I think we all understand. And it's what a lot of us talk about. How can I drive more leads, right? That's what growth hacking and all the marketing approaches and SEO and PPC and all that stuff is. Raising your prices, again, it's more it's more than that it's reevaluating your prices or thinking through hey is this is the per seat model working for me for example the the rule of thumb for per seat is if two users of the same account log into your software and they both see the same thing then you should not be charging per seat but if they two of them log in and they see different things like if you log into close.com it's CR, sales crm two people have different leads right they have different to-dos they have different whatever Per seat, no brainer. That's the way I would do it. If two people log into uh, Mailchimp, they see the same thing. So you should not charge per seat. You need to figure out a different value metric there. Um, third and last thing in terms of uh, the third way to grow your SaaS is to sell more to your existing customers. And so this is something that was really common. You know, if you look back at at Intuit, um, which is a software company that makes uh, what is it? It's QuickBooks, which is like the most popular small business accounting package, and then Quicken, which is tax software. They have put out this software for decades, and they've been the market leader. And where do you go when you own ninety percent of of a market? You know, um, TurboTax. Yes, TurboTax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. So producer Xander just texted me and said, or he slapped me and said, it's TurboTax, not Quicken. Um, but anyways. The idea is they've they've owned ninety percent of this market for decades. And how do you grow your business once you own that much of a market? You have to sell more things to to the people. So you'll see that they have add-ons. It's like, well, there's the the TurboTax add-on for state filing, and there's a TurboTax add-on for for you know small business people because you have ten ninety nine income. Um, there's the TurboTax sales tax add-on, and they charge for each of these things, right? Because it really wasn't a recurring model for so many years. That doesn't necessarily translate directly to SaaS, although the two ways that are most common and kind of most widely accepted with subscription revenue is um, to feature gate, which is essentially having a sales tax add-on that you have to be at a higher SaaS tier in order to uh, you know, receive, or it's to say, well, more usage, more seats, you know, it comes back to that value metric, um, that leads you to, to paying us more. So, What's interesting is that TurboTax and I'm sorry, uh, uh, Quicken and in, Intuit in general, 
what you'll see is that they they could have just kept raising their prices, right? Instead of trying to sell more to more people, they could have just saw everything as a nail and hit it with the razor prices. Eventually they would, and they, they had pricing elasticity because they are the brand name in the space and have been. But what would that have done if they just kept raising each year, each year, each year? It would have opened up the bottom end of the market for a competitor to swoop in and steal the, the low end and then slowly build up under them. And we see this happening with enterprise SaaS plays today. If you raise your price too much, you, you leave that underbelly exposed and startups come in and, and start to, to chew on it in essence. And um, you know what we see with folks like uh, Jira Atlassian is they, Jira is pretty expensive, but they have like a five or 10 user uh, plan that is relatively inexpensive. It's like 10 bucks or 20 bucks compared to like, you know, several hundred a, a month that you would pay the moment you tick over to, you know, pass that 10 person plan. So it's it's interesting to think that raising your prices only works to a certain extent, even if you have pricing power, even if you have branding at a certain point, you have to think, how can I just sell more things to my existing customers? So those are my SaaS thoughts for the day. There are only three ways to grow. It's more customers, raise your prices and reevaluate your pricing or sell more to your existing customers. And with that, I'm gonna invite my guest to come on the show. This is Anthony Eden. He is the founder of DN Simple and he is in MicroConf Connect and it's a founder spotlight today. Um, DN Simple, if you haven't heard it, you should check him out. 10 year old profitable bootstrap business, infrastructure as a service. So Anthony has learned a ton. He and I have connected at MicroConf, uh, a couple of MicroConfs, but in MicroConf Europe when he was living in France a few years ago. And I um, just have a lot of respect for the, the business he's built, you know, and to run a, in essence, he says infrastructure as a service. I think of it as like, I think of it as SaaS, but I think the more specific is infrastructure, but it's, you know, it's people paying subscriptions to get, get something done. And there's so few of us who do these businesses for 10 years that, um, uh, you know, it, I just have a lot of respect for that. So Anthony, welcome to the Thanks show. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Yeah. I've been really appreciating your uh, participation in the connect community over the past few months. Every time I see your name come up, I'm like, listen to this guy. He knows he's been through it. He's been through a lot. Well, it, so. I, I think having the Slack community has been fantastic. I think that especially now that a lot of us are still stuck at home and we really want to be involved with other other founders and be able to help. I think it's been a really, really good addition to all the different things that MicroConf brings. And frankly, I was super excited to go to MicroConf in the US for the first time this year. And ugh, it was such a bummer to have it canceled. But you, you, you do you. what you got to do. Yeah, exactly. I, I hear you. I feel your pain on that one. Um, cool. So you're, you're now here in the States, you've kind of moved back and forth with your family. Um, and how are things? How are you holding up in this time of, of Corona and quarantine? Uh, we're pretty good. I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate because we've never had a, we've always been a distributed team. We've never had a, an office that I had to go into. Uh, I have team members that are all over from Europe to South America and one who's even wants to go out to Asia. So we, we've had the luxury of being able to stay at home during all these crazy times. Uh, we were able to bring my, I brought my kids back. One of my kids was in France studying, so she came back over. Um, so it was, it's been good. I mean, it's been good that we've had that ability. And uh, at the same time, I'm hoping that at some point, you know, things will return to some sort of new normal. Uh, I'm down in Florida. So right now it's going the opposite direction. I was hoping it would go, but such yeah. is life. Yeah. And I'm, I mean, so one of the most interesting things about your story is, 
you know, DN Simple is, uh, you know, your H1 on your website, simple, secure domain management, automate your domains with our exceptional toolkit, domains, DNS. I know you do a ton of other stuff, but how have you survived as a bootstrap business in this? It's just red water. You know, you have GoDaddy, you have Namecheap, you have, I mean, I could name 50 of them. And how, how did you get this off the ground in a way that, that got any traction in this play, in this space? Yeah. So if you if you were involved in it all in this space, you were buying domains 10 years ago, you you would remember that it was a pretty awful experience. And so the first thing that I, that I focused on was building something that would work for the audience that I understood, which was engineers. I was speaking at conferences. I was writing a lot of software. I did a lot of open source. So I built a DNS and domain tool for engineers, for software developers. Uh, once I did that, then there was sort of slow, steady growth for a long time. Along the way, some of the big players made some pretty massive mistakes, lots of PR mistakes. Uh, and uh, I took advantage of a few of those, uh, usually in sort of a guerrilla marketing fashion, you know, going on Twitter and just like saying one little thing. And those types of events, if you can get onto them in the right way, in, in a way that is respectful and, and doesn't, you know, come off sounding like a jerk, then it works out pretty well to spur growth again. Um, and then all through the, basically through the life of DN Simple, we've focused on just building software that is usable, that is a joy to use, that does the right thing, and that really continues to serve our constituent audience. There's a lot of people out there who just want a good DNS provider and a good domain registrar that they can trust, uh, and they get that with us. Yeah, yeah. If you, I forgot to mention um, folks in the chat, if you're in MicroConf on air, please do feel free to uh, paste any questions in there for Anthony and he can answer them, but I have, a, I have several I want to keep going through. Um, I know a bit about your story and, and I know that, uh, you know, when you applied for the Founder Spotlight, you said that, that your greatest success is basically achieving complete financial independence. How long did it take you to get there from, from the start of DN Simple and what did that feel like? So for the first three years, I was gainfully employed uh, in various forms. So initially, I came on as an independent. I was an in, in, well. I, I started DN Simple while I was closing down another business where I was the CTO. It was a startup. It had been funded. It didn't really work, and so things were winding down. So I started DN Simple there. Then I went and into independent contracting. So I was picking up contracts, and that was working really well. Um, it is a lot of work, but so getting the contracts. But once they were in place things sort of fed themselves. Um, and then at one point I got hired by Living Social. And so I went to work for them and that actually took me to the point where I was able to take the Ensemble to a, prop, like, to a level of profitability where it could actually fund not only myself, but the other two folks who were involved at the time. Um, and so, so it took about three years really to get to the point where I could say, I'm gonna work on this full time. Uh, and then once it got there, I played it very safe along the way using revenue and using profits as the way to grow the company rather than, than using debt and other vehicles that were higher risk because I was risk, I was risk adverse. I wanted to make sure that, that my family and I were safe and that the other families of the other people who were involved were safe and that we would have a business that would survive the long run. I mean, this, it really was designed to be a profitable long-term business. And so the decisions I took along the way were really supporting that. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And how many, how many folks work on it now? Employees and more. So we have, 19, we have 19 people 
which is a mix between independent contractors, uh, some part-time, some full-time, like some that are working almost exclusively on this and a lot of employees as well. Uh, so, so yeah, we have a good mix. Very cool. There's a question coming in. It's, is DOH having an impact on your business, positive or negative? Right. So DOH, for those who don't know what it yeah. is, let me, let me define that first. DNS over HTTPS. And so that's basically at the end when somebody does a DNS resolution. So at the edge, they communicate from their desktop machine to their resolver over HTTPS instead of over a traditional DNS protocol. It's designed to be a privacy mechanism to remove snooping in between. Um, it hasn't had an impact on us because it only goes from the clients to the resolver. Uh, there eventually there's discussion about complete encryption of the DNS protocol. Cause right now the DNS protocol is wide open. Uh, essentially if you can get the packets, you can see what's going back and forth. And so there's, there's been discussion about uh, making sure that that gets more secure. And eventually that will have cause us to have to change some of our implementations to support it. The good news is the world of DNS is, is built by a bunch of people who believe in writing protocols and they document everything in the RFC process. And so, uh, which is basically how the internet was created. So as long as we follow those, it's usually pretty good for us and it doesn't really have an impact positive or negative on our business. Yeah, it's nice to be involved with more open standards rather than reliant on um, platforms you know, building on Facebook or Twitter or what, you know, whatever, Absolutely. what have you. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Well, good. I'm glad you, when I asked that, I'm glad you knew what DOH was because I was like, is that Department of Health, like I, I had, I know what, I know what DNS over HTTPS. I had heard that, but I didn't realize it was acronym that way. So, yeah, cool. We have we have another question coming in from uh, from the Slack. Tony from Cloud Forecast. Well, first he says plus one to advice from Anthony Eden. Thanks for that, Tony. And then he has a question. He says, I assume many of your customers are developers slash engineers. What are some acquisition channels that have worked well for that persona? Yes, you assume correctly. Uh, the, in the early days, I spent a lot of time at conferences. I would go either as a speaker or I would do, I would go to lightning talks and I put myself on a lightning talk and I wouldn't just talk about the business. I would go out and I would demo something that was fun and unique for that time period. So for example, one of the first ones, which was really impactful was RubyConf. I went to a RubyConf and I got up at a lightning talk and I said, I'm going to show you how I can register a domain from the command line using a CLI tool in five minutes. And so I did that, I went through it and everyone's like, wow, that's so cool. That was really great. Again, thinking at the time, this was almost 10 years ago. So, and that got a lot of people in the Ruby community excited. I did the same thing at an Elixir event uh, with Elixir this time, again, staying in the context of that event, just demonstrating how you can do stuff with the tool. And we continue to acquire people through content that we have out there that's, that's intelligent and technical and geared towards developers. So well-documented APIs, good support site, which has like really in-depth documentation. So we get a lot of SEO from that. And then we get people sharing it. We get people linking to the documentation from other service providers. So those are the ones that have worked really well for us over the years. It's a, it's a long slog, but it does the job if you're growing a business that you want to have steady, solid growth on. Yeah, it sounds like it all comes back to, you know, your customers really, really well. You know, it sounds like that, right? That you know yes. what they want. And I bet your documentation is substantially better than large companies because at a large company, they have a content team who they hand a pamphlet to and say, oh, these, this is a description of what our customers are and that's what they get. Whereas you, 
can probably name 20 by name or, you know, 50 that at an event, you just have a persona in your head that's really strong. Is that pretty accurate? Right. Yeah. Yes, that is. Absolutely. Cool. So I, I have another question for you. Um, you've, you've talked about this, uh, you know, publicly, but it, it's in our, in our um, application, it says, you know, what's the greatest failure you've experienced? And you had a falling out between yourself and your, your co-founder, who was also your brother. And I can yes. imagine that was a really, really difficult, um, yeah, really difficult time. You want to tell us uh, a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so uh, we, he and I started the business together. Um, and unfortunately, what after working on it for three years, um, we just had sort of a difference in the direction that we expected it to go and what we were willing to, to, um, to tolerate in terms of the growth and things like that. And it, it was at a really tough time. It was, it was just around the time when we got pretty massively uh, DDoSed. So we had a denial of service attack that, that took us out, like took us off completely. And at the same time, like during that same year when all that was going down, uh, my father was diagnosed with cancer and he died during that time period. So it was like, hey, can everything go wrong at once? Yeah. Yes. So, so, so it was, I mean, ultimately we found a solution which I think worked for both of us in terms of the, the actual outcome. So he got, I guess, what he wanted out of it, uh, which was his separation and, and, and all of the, you know, the financials that came with that. I got to keep control of the business um, and, and we did it over a long period of time so that at least it wasn't going to impact the business directly. And I think ultimately that was the right thing to do. Unfortunately, we didn't come out of it really, like the relationship was just shattered at that point, which I think is a risk. If you, if yeah. you choose to work with family members, it can be great, but just keep in mind that the risk is heightened over working with anyone else, whether that's, a, you know, it, it it's just different. If it's a family member, whether it's it's a, a brother, a sister, a father, a child, uh, a spouse, whatever it is, just keep in mind the risks of if things go wrong um, before taking that decision. It's definitely one that in hindsight, I probably should have thought a little bit harder about how to make it so that we didn't ruin our relationship um, due to the business. Right. Right. An agreement to reconcile. I've heard them called, right? Where it's like, we will, we will agree to leave the business before we let it ruin. That's, right. that's tough. Dual relationships are really hard, right? Founder, co-founder plus anything, friend, brother, whatever. Yep. We have another question coming in. Um, I think this one's from YouTube. It says, was living social problematic contract wise with you having a side project, a side project that was a growing startup? So it was not because I specifically had the call outs in our contract that set that aside. So if you're going into a contract with an entity that, that exists, that has a very specific set of, like an area where you're focusing on and you call it out in the contract as an exclusion. And of course you want to get an attorney to review any contract like this. Um, then, then you can, you can make it work as long as you, you really, go through the contract and ensure that you protect yourself and you protect the other business too, because you wouldn't want the, you wouldn't want any sort of miss like mixing up of those two things. And then, and then I gave a, I really worked hard when I was at living social to give everything I had to that company when I was working on it. Like I really separated the two um, and, and focused on making sure that, that the work that I did for them was high quality and that I gave a hundred percent. And I think that they, ultimately we ended up, it was a really good relationships. You know, Living Social was at a time where things were crazy with the whole, uh, the, the coupon online thing and the discount thing. So they were in heavy competition 
uh, at the time. And, and so I, I did my part and it, I think it worked out okay in terms of the contract. It, it just, it, it worked out, but it, it came by, by making sure that was part of the contract. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a pretty common thing. And it's nice to have the, there's often the, the IP schedule of like, what are all the things you own already, you know, or are working on coming into it. And if, if you're pretty upfront about it and you deliver, it sounds like you really delivered for them, then the, people don't tend to have uh, much issue with it. But if you try to hide it or you are falling, you know, not the, the A plus player, that's when folks start asking questions and trying to figure out, um, trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah. The other thing I can imagine is the challenge is if you come up with the thing you start working on while you're working at that entity, yeah. because then you're already in a contract before you start that. And that contract yeah. is going to, to precede what you think you want to be able to do. And, and, and that could be complicated as well. So I'd say that's a higher risk if you go that route. And then you definitely want to have an attorney on your side to understand how to yeah. negotiate your way through this. Yeah. I had a coworker at um, drip lead pages and he was going to start something on the side while he worked there. And he went to HR first and said, Hey, I'm going to start this thing. Here's what it is. It's definitely not, you, you couldn't start anything competitive to either of them, but here's what it is. not competitive. I want you to know about it. And I want to you know, put it in writing and I want to amend my employment contract. And then HR went to the CEO and then they met with them. They had the conversation, you know, so it was, yes, it was some rigmarole you might say, but it was, it's the right way to go about it to avoid winding up in court or winding up, uh, with, you know, later, if you try to sell, if you try to raise funding, if you, there's all these things, that stuff comes up. They look at your yeah. appointment. I mean, that's what due diligence is, is making sure all, you own all the IP and that there's no ambiguity. And any of that uncertainty will either kill a deal or it can reduce, you know, reduce the price or reduce the funding because there's more risk to it. So yeah. awesome, sir. It's been excellent. It always goes so fast, but it's, uh, I think we can chat all day, <laughs> but appreciate you coming on, man, sharing the wisdom. Um, for well, folks well who thanks wanna, for having me. Yeah, absolutely. For folks who want to keep up with you, um, A Eden on Twitter, as well as at DN Simple. And uh, dnsimple.com, of course, is where you where you spend your days. Thank you absolutely, so much. man. Have a good one. Thanks everybody. for coming out. I'll see you at the next microconf. So thanks again for joining us. Microconf on air. Next Wednesday, we will be um, live streaming, same time, same place. YouTube.com slash microconf. See you then. <laughs>